When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the best way to fall asleep with Nightfalls, you can now become a premium supporter. Enjoy the entire back catalogue of Nightfalls classics, all with a rich, immersive and totally ad-free experience. If you love falling asleep to Nightfalls, Nightfalls Premium will elevate your sleep while helping to support myself and the team. We love creating Nightfalls, but without supporters, it wouldn't be possible. Join Nightfalls Premium today in just two tabs on both Apple Podcasts or via the Supercast link found in the show notes for all other podcast players. Your sleep will thank you for it, and so will I. If you've been feeling overwhelmed with anxiety lately, try listening to a guided meditation on the Meditation for Anxiety podcast. Meditation is a proven natural way to help you calm down and dissolve stress so you can feel lighter and happier. So subscribe for free today to the Meditation for Anxiety podcast by searching for Meditation for Anxiety on your favorite podcast player. Hi, I'm Jeffrey, and welcome back to Night Falls. Join me around the campfire at the foot of these mystical falls for a podcast of bedtime stories designed to help you sleep. Each week, we'll begin with a brief meditation before settling into our story for the evening. And don't worry if you fall asleep before the end. I want you to drift off whenever you're ready. Perhaps you'd like to join me beside the fire tonight as I tuck into one of my favourite titles the Great Gatsby. We all have our own vision of paradise, and for me, it exists in this very clearing, nestled deep into the belly of nightfalls. Perhaps for the New York crowd in the roaring 1920s, G. Gatsby's infamous soirees fit their image of paradise rather nicely. Before we join Nick Carraway in taking up Gatsby's invitation, let's take a moment to wind down from the day. Come to a comfortable position, and as your body stills, feel your thoughts beginning to turn slower and slower. Breathing in deeply, allow a sense of stillness to wash through you. 
and give pause to any fear or anxiety lingering within you. Exhaling, feel any negative energy drain from your body on your out breath. Breathing in once more, feel the air flowing gently in through your nose and out through your mouth, carrying any physical or emotional tension out of your body on the current of your breath. The pressure to perform, to please others, to make them laugh or hold their interest can feel rather a heavy torch to bear at times. But as you lie there relaxing, dedicating a much-deserved moment to yourself, know that there is nothing wrong with being your own number one priority. All there is for you to do is keep nourishing yourself as you are in this very moment. Keep filling up on the things that help you relax, the things you love that bring you joy and spark your creativity. There is truly nothing of greater importance than your health and happiness. Take a deep breath in, hold it for a moment, and as you exhale, let go of any pressure you feel to please those around you. Inhaling once more, consider the things that bring you the most joy in life. Exhaling, let go of any responsibility you may feel to facilitate or entertain those around you. You, as you are in this very moment, are important, interesting, and always worth listening to. Whether you are the life and soul of the party, or, like me, find yourself perfectly content, tucked up with a good book, your life, the story of you, is one that deserves to be heard. Speaking of good stories, if you're feeling ready, I'll just find my page and we can begin. There was music from my neighbour's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach while his two motorboats slit the waters of the sound, trying aquaplanes over cataracts of foam. On weekends, his Rolls-Royce became an omnibus, bearing parties to and from the city between nine in the morning and long past midnight, while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all trains. And on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears, repairing the ravages of the night before. 
Every Friday, five crates of oranges and lemons arrived from a fruiterer in New York. Every Monday, these same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpless halves. There was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour. If a little button was pressed 200 times by a butler's thumb, At least once a fortnight, a core of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough coloured light to make a Christmas tree of Gatsby's enormous garden. On buffet tables, garnished with glistening hors d'oeuvre, spiced baked hams crowded against salads of harlequin designs and pastry pigs and turkeys, bewitched to a dark gold. In the main hall, a bar with a real brass rail was set up and stocked with gins and liquors and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another. By seven o'clock, the orchestra has arrived. No thin five-piece affair but a whole pitful of oboes and trombones and saxophones and violas and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. The last swimmers have come in from the beach now and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colours and hair bobbed in strange new ways and shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. The bar is in full swing and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot and enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's names. The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun, and now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music, and the opera of voices pitches a key higher. Laughter is easier minute by minute, spilled with prodigality, tipped out at a cheerful word. The groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable, become for a sharp, joyous moment the centre of a group, and then, excited with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and colour under the constantly changing light. Suddenly, one of these gypsies in trembling opal seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage and, moving her hands like Frisco, 
dances out alone on the canvas platform. A momentary hush. The orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her. There is a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she is Gilda Gray's understudy from the Follies. The party has begun. I believe that on the first night I went to Gatsby's house, I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. People were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow they ended up at Gatsby's door. Once there, they were introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby, and after that, they conducted themselves according to the rules of behaviour associated with an amusement park. Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all, came for the party with a simplicity of heart that was its own ticket of admission. I had been actually invited. A chauffeur in a uniform of robin's egg blue crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. The honour would be entirely Gatsby's, it said, if I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call on me long before, but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it. Signed, J. Gatsby, in a majestic hand. Dressed up in white flannels, I went over to his lawn a little after seven and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people I didn't know, though here and there was a face I had noticed on the commuting train. I was immediately struck by the number of young Englishmen dotted about, all well-dressed, all looking a little hungry, and all talking in low, earnest voices to solid and prosperous Americans. I was sure that they were selling something, bonds or insurance or automobiles. They were at least aware of the easy money in the vicinity and convinced that it was theirs for a few words in the right key. As soon as I arrived, I made an attempt to find my host, but the two or three people of whom I asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements that I slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table, the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone. I was on my way to get drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house and stood at the head of the marble steps. Leaning a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden, 
welcome or not, I found it necessary to attach myself to someone before I should begin to address cordial remarks to the passerby. Hello, I called, advancing toward her. I thought you might be here, she responded absently as I came up. I remembered you lived next door to. She held my hand impersonally, as a promise that she'd take care of me in a minute, and gave ear to two girls in twin yellow dresses who stopped at the foot of the steps. Hello, they cried together. Sorry you didn't win. That was for the golf tournament. She had lost in the finals the week before. You don't know who we are, said one of the girls in yellow. But we met you here about a month ago. You've dyed your hair since then, remarked Jordan. And I started, but the girls had moved casually on and her remark was addressed to the premature moon, produced like the supper, no doubt, out of a caterer's basket. With Jordan's slender golden arm resting in mine, we descended the steps and sauntered about the garden. A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight and we sat down at a table with the two girls in yellow and three men, each one introduced to us as Mr. Mumble. Do you come to these parties often? inquired Jordan of the girl beside her. The last one was the one I met you at, answered the girl in a confident voice. She turned to her companion. Wasn't it for you, Lucille? It was for Lucille too. I like to come, Lucille said. I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. When I was here last, I tore my gown on a chair, and he asked me my name and address. Inside of a week, I got a package from Croyrier's with a new evening gown in it. Did you keep it? asked Jordan. Sure I did. I was going to wear it tonight, but it was too big and had to be altered. It was gas blue with lavender beads. $265. There's something funny about a fellow that will do a thing like that, said the other girl eagerly. He doesn't want any trouble with anybody. Who doesn't? I stated. We all turned and looked around for Gatsby. It was testimony to the romantic speculation he inspired that there were whispers about him from those who had found little that it was necessary to whisper about in this world. The first supper, there would be another one after midnight, was now being served, and Jordan invited me to join her own party, who were spread around a table on the other side of the garden. There were three married couples and Jordan's escort, persistent undergraduate, obviously under the impression that sooner or later Jordan was going to yield him up her person to a greater or lesser degree. Instead of rambling, 
this party had preserved a dignified homogeneity and assumed to itself the function of representing the staid nobility of the countryside, East Egg condescending to West Egg and carefully on guard against its spectroscopic gaiety. Let's get out, whispered Jordan, after a somehow wasteful and inappropriate half hour. This is much too polite for me. We got up, and she explained that we were going to find the host. I'd never met him, she said, and it was making me uneasy. The bar, where we glanced first, was crowded, but Gatsby was not there. She couldn't find him from the top of the steps, and he wasn't on the veranda. On a chance, we tried an important-looking door and walked into a high Gothic library, panelled with carved English oak, and probably transported complete from some ruin overseas. There was dancing now on the canvas in the garden, men waltzing girls backward in eternal graceless circles, superior couples holding each other fashionably and keeping in the corners and a great number of single girls dancing individually or relieving the orchestra for a moment of the burden of the banjo or the traps. By midnight, the hilarity had increased. A celebrated tenor had sung in Italian and the notorious contralto had sung in jazz and between the numbers people were doing stunts all over the garden, while happy, vacuous bursts of laughter rose toward the summer sky. A pair of stage twins, who turned out to be the girls in yellow, did a baby act in costume, and champagne was served in glasses bigger than finger bowls. The moon had risen higher, and floating in the sound, was a triangle of silver scales, trembling a little to the stiff, tinny drip of the banjos on the lawn. I was still with Jordan Baker. We were sitting at the table with a man of about my age and a little girl who gave way upon the slightest provocation to uncontrollable laughter. I was enjoying myself now. I had drunk two finger bowls of champagne and the scene had changed before my eyes into something significant, elemental and profound. At a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. Your face is familiar he said politely. Weren't you in the first division during the war? Why yes, I was in the 28th Infantry. I was in the 16th until June 1918. I knew I'd seen you somewhere before. We talked for a moment about some wet, grey little villages in France. Evidently, he lived in this vicinity for he told me that he had just bought a hydroplane and was going to try it out in the morning. 
Want to go with me, old sport? Just near the shore along the sound? What time? I asked. Any time that suits you best, he replied. It was on the tip of my tongue to ask his name when Jordan looked around and smiled. Having a good time now, she inquired. Much better. I turned again to my new acquaintance. This is an unusual party for me. I haven't seen the host. I live over there. I waved my hand at the invisible hedge in the distance. And this man, Gatsby, sent over his chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment, he looked at me as if he failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What? I exclaimed. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced, or seemed to face, the whole eternal world for an instant then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favour. It understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself, and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that, at your best, you hoped to convey. Precisely at that point it vanished, and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over thirty, whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. Sometime before he introduced himself, I'd got a strong impression that he was picking his words with care. Almost at the moment when Mr. Gatsby identified himself, Butler hurried toward him with the information that Chicago was calling him on the wire. He excused himself with a small bow that included each of us in turn. If you want anything, just ask for it, old sport, he urged me. Excuse me, I will rejoin you later. When he was gone, I turned immediately to Jordan, constrained to assure her of my surprise. I had expected that Mr. Gatsby would be a florid and corpulent person in his middle years. Who is he? I demanded. Do you know? He's just a man named Gatsby, she replied nonchalantly. Where is he from, I mean? And what does he do? I prodded. Now you're started on the subject, she answered with a wan smile. Well, he told me once he was an Oxford man, the dim background started to take shape behind him, but at her next remark it faded away. However, I don't believe it, she said. Why not? I inquired curiously. I don't know, she insisted. I just don't think he went there. I would have accepted without question the information that Gatsby sprang from the swamps of Louisiana or from the lower east side of New York. 
that was comprehensible. But young men didn't. At least in my provincial inexperience, I believed they didn't drift coolly out of nowhere and buy a palace on Long Island Sound. Anyhow, he gives large parties, said Jordan, changing the subject with an urban distaste for the concrete. And I like large parties. They're so intimate. At small parties, there isn't any privacy. There was the soft beat of a bass drum, and the voice of the orchestra leader rang out suddenly above the echolalia of the garden. Ladies and gentlemen, he cried, at the request of Mr. Gadsby, we're going to play for you Mr. Vladimir Tostov's latest work, which attracted so much attention Carnegie Hall last May. If you read the papers, you know there was a big sensation. He smiled with jovial condescension and added, Some sensation, whereupon everybody laughed. The piece is known, he concluded lustily, as Vladimir Tostov's Jazz History of the World. The nature of Mr. Tostov's composition eluded me, because just as it began, my eyes fell on Gadsby, standing alone on the marble steps and looking from one group to another with approving eyes. His tanned skin was drawn attractively tight on his face, and his short hair looked as though it were trimmed every day. I could see nothing sinister about him. I wondered if the fact that he was not drinking helped to set him off from his guests, for it seemed to me that he grew more correct as the fraternal hilarity increased. When the jazz history of the world was over, girls were putting their heads on men's shoulders in a puppyish, convivial way. Girls were swooning backward playfully into men's arms, even into groups, knowing that someone would arrest their falls. But no one swooned backward on Gatsby, and no French bob touched Gatsby's shoulder. No singing quartets were formed with Gatsby's head for one link. I beg your pardon, a voice interrupted my thoughts. Gatsby's butler was suddenly standing beside us. Miss Baker, he inquired. I beg your pardon, but Mr. Gatsby would like to speak to you alone. With me, she exclaimed in surprise. Yes, madam, Gatsby's butler smiled. She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment, and followed the butler toward the house. He noticed that she wore her evening dress. All her dresses, like sports clothes, there was a jauntiness about her movement, as if she had first learned to walk upon golf courses on clean, crisp mornings. I was alone, and it was almost two. For some time confused and intriguing sounds had issued from a long, many-windowed room which overhung the terrace. Eluding Jordan's undergraduate, 
It was now engaged in an obstetrical conversation with two chorus girls and who implored me to join him. I went inside. The room was full of people. One of the girls in yellow was playing the piano and beside her stood a tall, red-haired young lady from a famous chorus engaged in song. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the library opened and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. He was saying some last word to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. Jordan's party were calling impatiently to her from the porch, but she lingered for a moment to shake hands. I've just heard the most amazing thing, she whispered. How long were we in there? Why, about an hour, I guessed. It was simply amazing, she repeated abstractedly, but I swore I wouldn't tell it, and here I am tantalizing you. She yawned gracefully in my face. Please come and see me. Phone book under the name of Mrs. Sigourney Howard, my aunt. She was hurrying off as she talked. Her brown hand waved a jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. Rather ashamed that on my first appearance I had stayed so late, I joined the last of Gatsby's guests. You were clustered around him. I wanted to explain that I'd hunted for him early in the evening and to apologise for not having known him in the garden. Don't mention it, he enjoined me eagerly. Don't give it another thought, old sport. The familiar expression held no more familiarity than the hand which reassuringly brushed my shoulder. And don't forget... We're going up in the hydroplane tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Then the butler behind his shoulder. Philadelphia wants you on the phone, sir. All right, in a minute. Tell them I'll be right there. Good night. He smiled. And suddenly there seemed to be a pleasant significance in having been among the last to go as if he had desired it all the time. Good night, old sport. Good night.